Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Please, for all the listeners who haven't heard you before, could you introduce yourself again to everybody out there listening? Uh, thanks, Robbie, uh, for having me back. So my name is Mark Duffett. I'm an associate professor at the University of Chester, and I specialize in well, popular music, fan culture, Elvis Presley, and associated topics. Now, since you study Elvis, I got to ask, what do you think makes a cultural figure or just an icon? An icon? Well, I mean, that's such a huge question, isn't it? I mean, I, I suppose um, it, the the ability to transcend stardom and become universal in some way would be one way to put it. I mean, they, you know, you can go in two different directions with this question. One would be that it's about kind of religious association and the other one would be that it's about some kind of level of giganticism and i think i'd go for the second kind of element that yeah uh, the 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 appeal of elvis and uh, the myth and the story has kind of got to a a very large level to the point where perhaps we project our own myths onto that and maybe that's iconic um can I ask from your perspective what Elvis would be? Like, who is Elvis if you were going to break it down for someone of maybe my generation that isn't kind of focused as much into the old, I wouldn't call it oldies. Eh, I mean, 10 years ago is technically oldies. <laughs> that makes me feel ancient, you know. Um, okay, so Elvis was uh, an unfeasibly prominent uh, singer who emerged through the rock and roll genre in the 1950s rapidly became a global figure and um, has remained in our memory ever since. And I think part of that is is through representations on film, but um, certainly for people who know his music, you know, it remains timeless. So although music fashions come and go, it seems like the music of Elvis has this amazing kind of timeless quality. Now, do you think that the public, like let's say today's time, do you think the public remembers him for the things that I guess a lot of people appreciated him for, which was the music, which was the clothes, which was the style, which was, I mean, a ladies man, if you want to say, but when you really boil down to things that I hear, you know, it's like his sandwich was a peanut butter and then they just named something like that. I'm like, is that the only thing you give the guy credit for? I mean, the guy had some great songs and really impacted a lot of people's lives. My grandma being one of them. Oh, okay, cool. Um, well, I'm glad your grandma's an Elvis fan. Uh, I got all her records now, so that's why I was like, I got to have Mark back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you want me to make record recommendations, I wrote a whole book on that. There we go, to the, like, which is the one in the background here. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we share the fa same favorite song, If I Can Dream, which is kind of Elvis's song, isn't it? And it says a lot about his character and personality, I think. Um What's the question again? <laughs> the remember the remembrance of Elvis. You know, it seems like a lot of people know the fun little details, but not necessarily who he was. Yeah, I okay, Robbie. I think of it like a kind of peeling an onion skin. And at one level, there's kind of stereotypes about Elvis that is in his iconicism. Like one of the qualities of an icon is you can reduce it to almost like a, the smallest bit, and it's still recognizably that thing or that person. And Elvis is not just an icon. In my view, he's an icon of individualism. I mean, he's he's the art, he's sort of like the ultimate individual, but at the same time, his individuality kind of resonates with a lot of social concerns and myths. Um, in terms of that kind of question of remembrance, I think you uh, would have to ask the question, who's doing the remembering? Because I think maybe Elvis's fans um, 
and, and people who listen to his music a lot may be remembering differently to people who've kind of maybe gone to the cinema and see uh, one or two hours films or, or have some sort of casual relationship to Elvis movies or see, saw the Baz Luhrmann film recently or anything like that. And um, not that I'm down on the Baz Luhrmann thing, I thought it was great in a lot of ways, but um, I think that maybe gives a particular view of Elvis, which, um, you know, sort of connects with some of his myth, but might not sort of be tied to the facts. Now, how much is the myth different from reality? Um, well, it depends which, which aspect of which myth you're talking about. Did he work for the FBI? That's the main question. I keep, there's oh, okay, a show that, yeah, there, I know yeah, there's a show that came out on Netflix where he was a cartoon FBI secret agent. I know that's not real, but it's just interesting to see that like that's how we're representing this figure now is through a Netflix cartoon. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's he's uh, a state, and the the uh, overseers of his image are kind of licensing it out to all sorts of different avenues. And um, you know, for a long time in in popular culture, he's been kind of recycled for these different things. Um, I think um, if you're asking what, like, yeah, okay, so Elvis had a um, an interest in law enforcement. I don't think there's any secret in that. And he also collected police badges and there's different sort of answers to the question of why he collected police badges. Uh, I think one of which might be that he could then kind of travel around with a firearm without anybody kind of worrying about it too much. A good answer. You like to collect guns. Yeah. 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 So, so I think, um, but I mean, um, and also, um, of course, with that visit to Nixon, like he he visited, um, yeah, what was it? The Bureau of he wanted the Bureau of Narcotics and and um, to get to get a badge from those guys, didn't he? So that well, that was the reason for his visit to Nixon uh, was to get another badge. Um, so yeah, I, I I and and I mean, if you're asking about his connection with the FBI, there, there's a huge FBI file on Elvis that you might know about that if you dig into has all sorts of stuff in it. Now, was he a concern to the FBI? Was he just someone that was just of interest because he's a celebrity? Um, I think it was m more the other way around that Elvis wanted the FBI to protect him in various ways. I mean, in, in, in the 50s, um, there was an incident where I think it was somebody tried to blackmail Elvis. Um, he had kind of big, if you look at the photos of him, you'll see this. He had quite big pores on his skin, on his cheeks, and he got a dermatologist to, to work with him. And um, the dermatologist, I think, tried to blackmail him. So the upshot of that was that the, the FBI kind of made a note of that. And um, then towards the end of his life, I think the... Um, those aeroplanes that he had, there was some kind of case where um, there was some shady dealings around those or some attempt at fraud or something. And, and that sort of takes up a whole load of the end of the FBI file. But um, yeah, it's something I've not dug into for a little while to kind of get the full, full details on. Can I ask from when Elvis first became famous compared to where in your mind, through your research, you have seen a shift in his personality or just who he was as a, I mean, he I guess you can call him an icon still, even at the time, because he kind of transcended into today's cultural icon symbol. But when did you see the real shift in him as a person, not necessarily his career? 
what shift are you talking about, Rob? Are you talking about a kind of descent or are you talking about, um, I don't know, like a, a kind of recognition that he had an image or what, like what, what aspect? There? One that he was going to be blackmailed by a dermatologist. That's, I would put that on my chart of like, okay, life's a little bit different. I think I've reached a different echelon of fame. Oh. There. Well, that, I mean, that happened multiple times in different ways. And I think one of the, for me, like you going back to that question of iconicism, surely one of those uh, moments, I mean, I, I, they happen right from the 50s. I mean, like the whole thing of kind of the, the restoration of his hometown in different ways in Tupelo and, and kind of uh, the things that went on around Elvis culture there. Um and were ongoing. I think that was one of the markers that this guy was kind of really big star and really important. And then into the early 70s, I think it was, um, the naming of the road that he lived on at Graceland as Elvis Presley Boulevard, that would surely be a kind of moment where you kind of, you would recognise you were a bit of an icon at that moment if you're living on a, a road that's named after you. And I know at one point in the 70s, and I'd, I'd have to check, double check on the date for this one, I think maybe 73, 74, um, Elvis um, undertook or sort of delegated and the undertaking of the um, a microfilm cataloging of all his possessions. So he knew that he was kind of going to become part of history. Did he develop a type of paranoia or anything? Um, I, I just, I'm interested in like kind of the rabidness of fandom a little bit. It seems like there becomes like a disconnect in someone's, what we would consider, I don't know, normal behavior compared to, oh my God, I'm standing in front of this person. I would kiss the ground they walk on. And I'm curious right. if that, I mean, that has to do something not only to the celebrity, but also to the people around him. Oh, I mean, uh, uh, he lived with that for a long, long time in so far that if you look, if you think about it, um, right back in the mid fifties and even, you know, before he hit national TV, he was generating a huge enthusiastic audience response at a regional and local level. So it wasn't it, like the, the, the excitement of fans around him really, you know, where do you draw the line at the start of that? It's probably sort of 1954 when he's at the Overton Park shell and he he starts shaking his legs and the, the audience starts screaming um and then you know progressively you know on from that you know there's there's sort of stories of his clothes getting torn off uh you know right back in sort of maybe 55 50 and, and certainly once he's on tv in 56 you know there's it's, uh, it's off the hook um so yeah I, I think that that I mean I'm not sure that that would lead you to paranoia but it would certainly lead you to understand that you had a you had that role and and then there would necessarily be a separation from yourself and that role and i think you know that often repeated quote that he made in the 70s where he kind of says i'm you know in private he says i'm tired of being elvis presley you know that like that whole thing of uh he knows that the was that there's that press conference quote as well like the image is one thing and, and the person is another so he, there was definitely a separation there between the the private Elvis Presley and the the public figure. Was he affected at all by the counterculture movements or just anything that was going on more socially movement wise? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the 
when when we because Elvis has been so well preserved by history, and I think part of that is the the impact that he had and the time that he came along. So he came along at the time where TV was being as adopted as a as a mass domestic you know appliance, and and uh, so we've got a good audio visual record of this guy and and his talent. And if you look at performers before that. Um, you know, we we might have some notion of their extreme popularity. I mean, like early Sinatra, um, Rudolph Valentino, or going back into the 19th century, Jenny Linden people. But we don't have that sort of audiovisual record like we do with Elvis. Um, so that maybe answers part of your question. So repeat the question and I'll hit it a bit harder. The social movements, you know, if you're talking about... Oh, yeah, about the like... counterculture. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think... Yeah, so I, what I was saying was that because we have the because we have this audio record, audio visual record, and because Elvis is in some way so timeless to us, um, we kind of think of him as out of time. But of course, he wasn't. He was in time, and that in timeness is registered in all sorts of ways, even from things like Elvis walking off a plane and holding a copy of The Exorcist in the seventies, the the novel. Um, uh, that, that was the you know the thing you would read at the time when the film came out. So. We know that he was in time and equally he was in time with the counterculture. And although it didn't as much register in his films, although it did in some, I mean, um, there's a film we call called The Edge of Reality, where he kind of there's a kind of surreal psychedelic moment in it. Um, I think where the counterculture registered with Elvis, well, in multiple ways, really, I think, you know, the musicianship of the of the West Coast. Uh, the wrecking crew and people like that, you know, working on his records, but also um, his interest in new age spirituality, which was um, really attributable to his hairdresser, Larry Geller, who kind of gave him copies of various kind of new age books. And that sort of complicated his his Christianity, shall we say. Can I ask what like an example of what we mean by new age religion? Oh, yeah. OK, so. um in Christian religion, it's kind of monotheistic, and so you have God up above and you as being um, a child made by God, if you like, and um, you're, um, there being questions around your repentance and your giving yourself to God and being born again. And in New Age spirituality, um, the idea is that um, God is a sort of actualize, actualizable potential within yourself. So it's kind of like a self-development religion uh, around around the idea of God being within. Uh, but of course, you know, what what new age means kind of explodes out in all sorts of different directions. Is if, if God is within you, is does that mean that we're all in a field of energy and that we're all kind of animistic spirits, or does it mean that you know we are all gods like what 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 does it mean yeah so it's it's a field of kind of religious discussion did any of this impact his songs like i mean if we talk about like the 100 songs you wrote about i mean what obviously if you're developing i mean through some crazy times your songs are going to develop with you you're going to be singing about different things they're going to have more of a i mean you look at the john lennon had different tone to his songs um later on when more of the vietnam war stuff was going on so i'm curious if that you see a shift in his song works from let's say when he was really at stardom do you see any fans fall off do you see new audiences get attracted to it um 
Yeah, you do at different times. And I think um, part of that is, um, you know, the movies and, and to the kind of up and down with the movies at different points. Which do you think impacted more, the movies or the music? I don't think I've seen an Elvis film. Well, there's not a separation really because like the 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 movies were vehicles for the music but also he was sort of continually releasing in the in the well periodically releasing in the 60s and his his own releases were competing with his movie releases which was a sort of industrial strategy for the colonel probably what uh, do they say the only enemy is myself yeah 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 i mean that really elvis kind of suffered from that and i think that was the the commercial strategy of the colonel was just, you know, keep him visible. And how do you keep him visible? Well, I have lots of releases. And then he, he's got a lot of releases. And then what happens? And this is, you know, also true in the 70s where you had these budget albums by Camden um, that, uh, you know, Elvis gets lost amongst his different releases. So if he has a new release, you know, there's it's got us sort of competing with these budget releases by him of old stuff. Um yeah, so I think I think that's an issue in terms of it, it affecting his music. Um, yeah, I, okay. So Elvis is not a songwriter, so he's a chooser of songs. He's an interpreter of songs. People are writing songs for him. People are writing songs for he like different parts of his movies. Um, he's choosing songs in his live set and things like that. So we have to be a bit careful to say that there's sort of this sort of um, or authorly sort of change but yeah for sure elvis's music in the 60s reflected the times i mean he covered the beatles he covered uh odetta um and and various other artists that kind of were kind of connected to maybe like covered dylan um so he, 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 there's certainly a reflection of the times in terms of new age i think I think Elvis is interested in the new age and, and like, you know, he would give out a copy of a book called The Impersonal Life, which would be an example of this. And the, the idea that, you know, in our in our bodies, we're kind of in a role and perhaps our ego is maybe not as important. Um, the way that I would see that as impacting on Elvis is actually through things like karate. You know, he's interested in the martial arts, which then he kind of demos on stage in about 74, you know, in a big way. So he was always kind of connected with karate. And if you think about karate, all this like stuff about the the, philo the Eastern philosophy about the, the movement of energy, yeah, that's kind of new age, really. Yeah. Um, I never made that connection with that. I thought he just did it because it looked cool. Um, well, <laughs> it looked cool as well. I mean, it was a way to, it was a way to have, I mean, Elvis is a consummate entertainer and he's always goofing about, isn't it? So it's a way to entertain his audiences as well and kind of mystically kind of imply that there was, you know, this is, I, I mean, I mean, I think one of the things of my research, looking at the discussions of Elvis and his fans has always been this idea that in a way, because Elvis is so popular, when somebody is like that and they seem welcoming, they sort of take on the power of their audience. So if they have a huge, huge audience, they become not exactly formidable figures, but sort of they have a high social status and they have this sort of empowerment. And 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 yeah, that's that's part of why fans connect with them. And then the, I mean, I've theorized this using Durkheim's work, which you know we could 
sort of talk about but it, it i mean it's kind of obvious really when when somebody is very popular um we kind of know that when we meet them and then we get a little bit anxious perhaps about meeting them because it's both exciting and, and anxiety provoking to think that they might not accept us but of course in elvis's case he's continually disarming that in his humbleness and his background and he's saying things like you know if you think i'm nervous i am um so there's a sort of um nobody really gets the impression that elvis would be snooty or turn them away and that's kind of a huge part of his appeal i think that he's he was deferential, he was humble, he was genuine, and he was also contradictory. So that's a sort of that that also allows all sides in, doesn't it, on this equation. When you say contradictory, do you mean like just he never really showed the fact that he was kind of nervous at times, or if he was more some of the things you used as examples for being humble, you know, talking in interviews or things that he said publicly in interviews. He didn't show that on stage. I mean, for me, watch this is like the first time I've ever really seen anybody show so much energy. Like when you really focus on in the moment, that's Elvis. It's not, you know, there's people that sing and dance and they're in the thing, but he was moving around on stage. He was actually there. He wasn't like, I just got to get through this gig and get over with. And then I get to go back to my hotel room. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's he's um, the energy he puts out on stage is, is genuine in that respect. And, you know, by the time he does something like the comeback special, you know, even though that, you know, he hasn't really done live stuff for quite a while. Uh, he's got that knowledge and experience there of how to kind of um, mobilize an audience for sure. And so he he's kind of a, a vessel for that, isn't he? He moves that energy through himself. I mean, that's one way to see it um so yeah i i think i think that like he's ex, he's a he's an experienced entertainer in that respect and probably you know the most experienced entertainer probably i mean in terms of i mean one of the words that he used discussing this in the early 70s when he was interviewed by a couple of guys that made a documentary about him was body vibrations which is a really interesting term when you think about it you know the whole moving to the movement uh, or the uh, moving to the music kind of shaking your leg and uh kind of yeah that that has for a lot of fans that was kind of an erotic experience right and 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 it was also a way to sort of um yeah use the music well shake the yeah. shackles of repression too i mean i'm not using it in a sense that everybody was being like bricks were thrown at them but there was a large amount of how you had to act in public orderly we still have that today you know, it's not, you can't just, I mean, some people like to break into dance into Walmart, but when you're at a show and somebody's singing and moving their legs and moving in a way that a lot of people, you know, they might do in private, but never in public. I mean, it's intoxicating. Yeah. And I think we have that narrative, don't we, that, that rock and roll um, was allowed people that kind of license to, to move their bodies and that. Uh, you know, was linked in the 50s to the idea that oh, this is kind of, you know, the end of sexual repression and this is Elvis the pelvis, and this is kind of dangerous and the, the young women of America better watch out. Uh, and I think that philosophy stayed through the counterculture and into the permissive society in the 70s, the idea that um, se sexuality and sexual expression is kind of honesty. Uh, and and that civilization is a sort of repressing force on that honesty, and it's kind of a Freudian idea, really. Um, and Elvis kind of um, 
kind of benefited from that idea in a sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, he he kind of marks the place where things, you know, go up tempo like that and and happen. And uh, yeah, he he's. I often think of him like, um, you know, you're asking me about earlier. We were talking about what I thought of him, and it, I think he's a bridge figure between the the like the vernacular musics of America, you know, blues, soul, R and B, gospel, country, and and the modern world. And and to see him, you know, we've got a a, a popular music landscape now where this idea of the diva is important, and the diva is somebody of a marginalized identity kind of coming into the fold and in in a sense Elvis was that in his day you know he was the kind of you know his southerner his kind of working class um and so he was able to bridge things and I think Hollywood kind of used that to its advantage but it was already there I think in a lot of ways in the in the music he did but in the 50s that generated you know um controversy and opposition do you think Hollywood was the biggest kind of detractor in his career? Or do you think that there was another factor that kind of, I wouldn't say hurt his career, but put it into, I don't know, maybe a, a bump in the road. Let's say that it's a safe word. Um, I think. Cause he obviously had a great career. I can't say that, you know, his career went downhill or anything, but. Well, his career was kind of a roller coaster. It's kind of up and down and, and roundabout. And I think when we look back on it, because we consider him an icon, we kind of focus on the triumphs. So we say, oh, you know, there was the Aloha concert where he was broadcast in front of the world. There was the comeback special where he conquered TV again. There was the original performances on TV. And what we forget is all the kind of times in between or times where things might have gone wrong in various ways or were, were going wrong. Um, so at the end of his life, I mean, he was touring secondary markets in America. So I've got a ticket somewhere. I've got it on my desk, actually. Um, oh, is that another one? I oh, know that's, yeah, there you go. I don't know if you can, probably can't see this. I this is that. a ticket, um, Elvis um, in concert in Hollywood. But it's Hollywood, Florida. <laughs> so he's he's kind of going to sort of smaller and smaller places and traveling around. And the colonel is uh, selling out these places. So he's picking auditoriums where he can, you know, what what the colonel would do would be to um, contact the local newspapers. The local newspapers would make a story out of it and say, Elvis is coming to town. And the colonel would peg all the tickets really cheap. So the, the auditorium would fill up. But then also Elvis would kind of turn up with like a hundred members of like entourage. And so in economic terms, it wasn't ideal. But so this is, you know, when you think of the triumphs of his career, like being on TV in front of the world a few years earlier, you know, this is quite a, quite a nosedive. And then if you add to that the moments where maybe Elvis's prescription drug intake caused him to forget you know, the word to songs or, or um, you know, have, have problems on stage. I mean, you know, some of the very late performances, although he is hitting the mark generally, there's really rare occasions where you kind of look at him and you think, my goodness, there's no, for this split second, there's almost no connection with the audience. And then you think he's alone on stage. And then you think, wow, if he's alone on stage at that moment, my goodness, over those previous over 20 years, 
he wasn't and he could he could bring that audience organically to him so yeah i think there's moments where the, those moments of failure are actually moments where you kind of realize you know the the intense uh success in a way of, of what he did do you think <laughs> sounds, he was sounds, just sounds a bit weird doesn't it well do you think he was just overworked I mean, I heard a story about his like behind the scenes on one of those Christmas specials where he did like a, a bunch of hours in a row or did like a flight or something like that and arrived. I mean, you could probably explain it better than I can, but it made it seem like, you know, the pill stuff, all this, the food stuff, everything that happens where kind of gets remembered by people. Everyone always says, oh, he died on the toilet. I was like, the guy was working probably more than a lot of us know. When it comes to just being pressured for gigs and shows, and I mean, if you mentioned the colonel selling out, you know, tickets at a lower price or doing something of that sort, I mean, maybe the peaks in his career and the drop-offs were because of the fact he was so available. I mean, sad to say it, Aerosmith was coming down to my town and they had to cancel, I think, the week before it happened. It was like they have never really been here. And they're like, okay, we'll be back in 2030. I was like, I don't think any of you guys, I mean, God forbid, knock on wood, but... I don't know. You guys are getting up there in age. I mean, somebody's going to break a hip at some point. Yeah, and I, I guess um, in some ways the lifestyle that Elvis led, staying up at night and and taking these pills in a way, you know, he, he kind of lived, he did live fast, didn't he? So maybe 40 or 42 for Elvis is might, you know, might be like 60 or, you know, older. Damn, for... I'm halfway there, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> Tell me about it. I'm over 50 now, so I shouldn't, you know, complain. But um, in terms of this question of um, overwork, okay. Um, yes. Um, I think Elvis loved what he did, but I think he was also nervous. And I think you need that, you need those nerves in a way to genuinely connect with an audience on stage. You come on stage really blase, you're not necessarily going to connect with them. So Elvis definitely had that kind of up and down thing in in his performances um which many performers have where like you're anxious about it before you do it and it's a bit of an event when you do it and then when you finish it you're kind of relieved and so that doesn't help and then if you add in the tour in yeah of course so um in terms of overwork he was he he definitely collapsed uh at least once in the 50s and I think more than once in the 70s through overwork, through exhaustion. So evidently he was. And I, I can tell you this, um, one of the things I found out by doing the um, Counting Down Elvis book was that Chip's Momman, the guy who produced Elvis when he did his American Sound Sessions, also collapsed through overwork when he was mixing those records. So there was intense... Uh, level of hard work that people were putting in and then in the studio um, Elvis was known to kind of do as many takes of a song as he wanted to get it right and so you know there were some songs where he's doing like you know 30 takes or whatever to because he's perfectionist so in that respect of course you know that would take up time and and resources and this might be going through the night and um, yeah so combination of things but yeah I, I think he did work very hard at certain times in perhaps in this maybe in the 60s was actually less hard work in a weird way because although he was doing the films he was doing maybe three films a year and then like each of them would take a few weeks to film 
so the rest of the year he could go back to Graceland or wherever or you know live in Palm Springs and and um kind of have time off so actually the probably the 50s and the 70s were, were actually kind of much uh, more exhausting times might be a weird question but do you think Graceland was a positive for Elvis oh that's a really interesting question yeah um what okay so like you know going into this question of like you were talking about this question of fans before I mean, we know by the time Elvis moved to Graceland, he already was a big star and he had a lot of fans after him. And so one of the first things he did at Graceland was fit the music gates where, where he knew that fans would come and hang out. So in in that respect, you know, he was already at that level. But um, I, th I, I think we generally see... Graceland as sort of a version of Elvis's autobiography. It's the place where he can creatively be himself. But yeah, I, why? And also, he gets to play there, right? You know, Elvis is goofing around with his guys or or have, holding a party or whatever. So, in that respect, I, I guess it was good for Elvis. But wh why would it not be good for him? Asking me now. Yeah, 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 I am. I'm throwing it back to you so I could figure out why. I like work. From. I like my days off, but you put me like in the lockdown situation almost however long inside my own house, you start to go a little bit crazy. And if you talk about around the 60s when he's more prominent at Graceland, um, I start to ask, I mean, is it too much of a good thing? You know, not to add a little Elvis on that end of that there, but too much of a good thing can sometimes uh, be a bad thing. Yeah, uh, well, I guess there's, um, I remember there was a, a book uh, about uh, Elvis when he died, and uh, one of the phrases that came out of it, I think it was Serge Denisov's book, was um, the prisoner in the mansion hypothesis, which I think that sort of sums up Graceland, doesn't it? The idea that Elvis is in sort of this captivity almost, um, and um he has privacy upstairs at Graceland, but Graceland is a communal place in a lot of ways. You know, guys are coming around. I think didn't Charlie, I think, had a had some living quarters in there. I think Jerry Schilling was possibly living there for a while. And um Charlie Hill. So Charlie Hodge. Yeah. Charlie Hodge was um a guy who was on stage with Elvis um and was a yeah, he's kind of uh aide. Met him in the army. Yeah, because this is the other thing that was probably a big who's who of Elvis people that we have to... I have an uh, album with him wearing an army uniform on the front cover. He's got his face. Okay. I think it's an army uh, uniform. Yeah. Could be the cover of Big Hunk of Love as a single, I think he did for that. I think he that looks was young, it. very young. Yeah, that would be that would be the late 50s. Um, yeah, so I, th I think... I think... I mean, I... What I think is interesting about Graceland is, in a sense, although Elvis has privacy upstairs at Graceland, he's kind of pretty much always on show in different ways, isn't he? I mean, like, you know, a lot of the people that hung out at the Graceland gate, um, some of the more dedicated ones, they were called gate people, and they would be regulars, just hanging out there waiting for Elvis. And um, they often met at a little restaurant called the Hickory Log and would kind of exchange information on where Elvis was, whether he was in town, out of town. And then a lot of those fans have took pictures of him coming in and out of the gate in his car. So we have this sort of record of what Elvis was wearing and the fans have become like historians. 
Um, but I think in a way, you know, as soon as he probably got out of the upstairs of Graceland and certainly out of the house and in the grounds, you know, he's kind of on display in different ways. And the, the, this question of what, what does privacy mean, I think, is a tricky one for a figure like Elvis because, well, you know, pe people are going to write stuff about him at the time or after he goes or whatever. I mean, like, you know, going back to this question of stress and decline, clearly the the bodyguard book, Elvis, What Happened, which came out a bit before he died, you know, was a stressful event, I think, for Elvis. And he, he described it to one person as gossip put out as a book. Um, but ha having that sort of life of scandal, uh, as well as everything else, is going to add to your stress levels. Do you think that he knew what his identity was? I mean, I wouldn't say going through a pastor syndrome, but if everyone knows you as Elvis... I mean, are you safe to do that inside of your own home? And then what does Elvis even mean? You know what I mean? Like, doesn't Elvis on stage dancing and doing all this, making amazing music, and then you take a period of time off before you go back out? I mean, that craving to go back out, not just because you want the stage and you love being out there singing music, but it's also, where's Elvis? Am I Elvis still? Do I still have it? You know, these questions start to come up. And that, that might be my own speculation, but... I'm just looking at it from examining it from a celebrity standpoint. I'm not a celebrity, but I've definitely looked into a little bit about what that fame can do to a person. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, one of the sources on Elvis that I trust implicitly is, is Billy Smith's um, YouTube channel because Billy Smith uh, was one of Elvis's relatives and he was kind of close to Elvis a lot of the time. And I don't think he has the same kind of, commercial axe to grind if you like as some some other elvis uh sort of writers and people and um you know he has a lot of accounts of kind of being with elvis in different times and i think it's clear from those accounts and other places that elvis kind of knew knew what his image was and he knew what his identity was but when you look at what elvis was interested in and what he did i think i mean one of the things you know that going back to this sort of idea of the peeling the onion skin, if you like, away from the stereotypes of Elvis. One of the stereotypes of Elvis is just a dumb southerner. But when you look at it, you know, one of the things that Elvis did a lot in his private life was read. And his reading material was diverse. And his interests, you know, were diverse in that respect. And, and, and things like his interest in New Age religion, I mean, that runs almost completely counter in a way to his public identity at that point when he's doing those movies in the 60s so he i think he found he found ways to sort of preserve his private self um but you yeah he would have you said it runs counter to his public perception or how people viewed him but what about if if i can dream that song is way too I think it means more, like I'm not. I think it sounds like Elvis. It's not like I mean I'm not saying Elvis is a bad singer. I just it sounds like he could just talk it and it's coming out. But it's the emotion that he had when he sang it. I don't sense fakeness. I sense authenticity. I mean that's why I think I like it so much. I'd agree. I'd agree. And I think in uh, I think Elvis's music um, is authentic to feelings, and and it's very difficult to analyze music because you know uh, there's what there's chords and notes and what musicians do but there is that question of how you kind of 
get to that kind of soul in music. And when you listen to Elvis's voice, quite often there's multiple emotions at once stacked together in the way that he conveys things. Um, but I think the, the movies, the inclusion of Elvis in different plot lines, like Harem Scarum, a movie for kids, or Charo, where Elvis is a sort of a greeting card cowboy type figure. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of different to the person that Elvis actually was. You're going to have to write down some of these movies for me so I can start doing a little yeah, deep yeah, dive yeah. on I'll, them. I'll send you a list. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to ask when it comes to the record, what do you trust as sources to look at and why are there so many independent theories or runoffs if there's such a complete record of Elvis? Uh, that's a good question. And I think, um, I think it can be very hard to trust. I mean, I think um, most. Despite my JFK research, I'm pretty fact oriented. I'm digging through a lot of documentation for a lot of stuff and speaking to individuals who are actually there which i've done multiple times but i think that's that's a good thing to do if you can but of course a lot of the in, individuals around elvis are dying out and they're quite hard to get to but many of them have written books many of those books do have commercial impulses behind them so you have to read them from the point of view of well you know uh is this being given to us to set the record straight or is this some kind of spin on these this information but the thing with elvis he's such a public figure that you that like there's multiple places where the same story is told so you can kind of check it up on a little different places including you know memoirs from fans and people like that that were just around maybe when he went to the memphian sort of theater to watch a film or whatever at night or uh, other things so in terms of what i trust i think i think you, as you keep digging in this world i mean this probably seem same as jfk you come across authors and sources that just seem like they've really done their homework from what you already know. Uh, and you think about their quality and their reputation and whether they would have any kind of commercial motive and what that would be. And then you just kind of sit down and think, okay, you know, there are certain things within the Elvis community that will people will point to and go, okay, so this is a, this is probably a trustworthy source. So um, Keith Flynn, for example, has spent a long time doing uh, a website that has a lot of Elvis's recording sessions on it and things like that. And that's trusted to the point that people like Peter Grelnick will go to it and uh, look at it, I believe. So I think Peter Grelnick's work is very much trusted, I think, within the, the Elvis fan community. So it's, it is a case of finding things that like seem to have a seal of quality on where maybe people you you kind of trust the digging that people have done um but yeah there, i mean there have been some penis like fakes in, in the elvis world there was and there's a lot of kind of ways well, you kind of know in the, in the modern universe of kind of amazon kindle publishing and uh you know ai publishing there's a lot of low-grade information out there on different things you don't think he's still alive <laughs> exactly <laughs> but i mean the the amount of what boggles me is sometimes the amount of time that people will put into kind of you know researching and writing about elvis i've got one book called um 
the Elvis Encyclopedia by Adam Victor, and it's got in the front, you know, this took Adam Victor six six years to do, and you, you're reading it, and it's, you know, massive book, small print, and uh, I think six years, he did it quickly. <laughs> this is so much, such a massive universe of facts he's corralling here, and as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, oh, he's putting things in here that I probably wouldn't. Like, there's a bit where he mentions that he thinks that William Faulkner wrote to Elvis after Elvis's mother died. I've I've never seen that corroborated anywhere else, so I don't know if that's true. So I think you get to a point where you you check different sources against each other. Uh, you come to trust some sources more than others, and yeah, I think that's generally how it works. Uh, I've been in the research a little bit, despite I know the topic I'm te technically interested in uh, is a bit more controversial. Um, when it comes to everyone rolling their eyes at it pretty quickly. But I, I, th I think research-based, I go by documentation. I go by what I can prove. I only try and talk about what I verifiably have read. Um, it gets difficult because obviously independent theories from individual people start running off and stuff where there is no evidence for. you know. And at that point, when you can't explain that, I mean, it, it, I don't know. Would you Would you say it impacts your not personality, but impacts your, I don't know, potential for understanding Elvis? Like, how would you explain all the individual theories to someone who's new to Elvis? I'm new to Elvis. I'd probably chuck a book like Elvis for Dummies by um, Susan Dull at them, because I know that she's done a certain amount of homework. So that, that, that or I'd chuck one of my books at them. In fact, even better, I'd, I'd chuck this one, which was, oh, I, I don't know if you could see this one. Good but old that, Richard Nixon. That's the one I found you on. Yeah, yeah. Elvis Roots Image Comeback Phenomena, which is action-packed, and I can send you an ebook of it, and uh, that's got loads of stuff that I dug up. Um, but yeah, I, I think you get to, you just get to kind of go, right, it, you know, this looks interesting. But like I said, there have been whole books where there's been loads of stuff faked. There was one that's like, you know, you think, oh, this is the er text of sort of 50s recording and stuff like that. And you look like it, it gets reviewed in Elvis world and they say oh no this is actually you know he didn't know all this stuff he just made it up <laughs> oh no so I think the more you do it the more you kind of dig in and, and dive in there's very little academic work on Elvis and there's a few colleagues in in history and places that are starting to do books on Elvis so I think I trust what they do um so yeah it's why academics so little? Why is that so little with Elvis? Good question. I think um, there's some on JFK I'm happy about. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Rightfully, got, they're swinging from my side too, some of you, them. You've got quite a stream of JFK academics. I'll your... answer any question you want, my friend. Just don't call me a conspiracy theorist. I can't handle that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think, I think um, okay, so popular music studies as it developed um came about in really in the wake of the beatles actually and the beatles always had a bit more of um a sort of middle class cultural cachet than elvis and one thing i did um a while back was look through um the archive of the journal Kai de cinema which was the the journal that kind of birthed the french new wave kind of film movement and there's hardly anything written about Elvis films in there. But when whenever the Beatles bring out a film, there's there's you know a fair bit written. And I think the Beatles um 
through things like artistic collaboration, um, connections with things like jazz and other, other other means kind of elevated themselves, if you like. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, the, the short answer would be that sort of because academics were more interested in the Beatles than Elvis. I'll say Elvis, that. A friend of ours is going to be clapping his hands right now. That I know, I that. know, I know he is. I know. And uh, hello, Richard, if you're out there. But, uh, uh, you know, we we all know that Elvis is better than the Beatles. And, uh, you know, there's nothing to say on that. You know, if, if after all, there was four Beatles and one Elvis. But um, I've changed my opinion. I used to say the Beatles are kind of I just because I knew them more for my age. I mean, my grandparents listened to the Beatles and I would go up to their house all the time. But then when I got my grandma when she passed away and I got her records, I got nothing but Elvis, Sinatra. I liked all that stuff before, but I never really could appreciate it until I could sit down and actually kick back, look up at the ceiling, and blast some of these things. I I, I should um I should um postscript that with I was completely joking about it with the Beatles. Like you know, there's loads of crossover, and we know that they covered each other, and uh, you know that whole sort of um I believe there was a deleted scene in Pulp Fiction where there was a discussion about you know either you're a Beatles person or an Elvis person and it says a lot about you. I I don't really work like that. I just think you know that they're both really interesting acts and uh yeah, you know there, there's a lot and I do work on Beatlemania as well as Elvis fandom and I think there's lots of interesting things to say. But Elvis above the board, right? I mean, come on. I, I, I originally got into Elvis because um, I was studying fandom, and I thought, "Who's got loads of loyal and prominent fans?" It's Elvis. So Gene my Ruth Simmons. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there, there's another uh, there's another whole podcast to do on Kiss, isn't there? I think I think you need to do a Kiss podcast. I'm good. My dad was in a cover band for forty years on Kiss. I don't need to be. He actually he's in a commercial with them. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've, he did not like just, Gene Simmons, sadly. They've just um, sort of done their last gig, haven't they? Has that gone off yet? And they're, they're turning into avatars, I believe, and uh, sort of immortalizing themselves in digital form. Ah. <laughs> I mean, I, this, I, that, that's an interesting thing because in a way, Kiss, you know, I often think about this. They're really kind of, at least in their more recent years incarnation of business that happens to be a band aren't they would that be fair to say i don't know it's an opinion it's there's but, a point when the fame doesn't go away or you don't want it to go away and you just start kind of milking it i mean when you start producing tv shows that aren't necessarily even about music or about any plot line like not different from a movie it's just about gene simmons and his family life and it's like reality television my partner's never forgiven me for for watching um Kiss meets Scooby Doo. Uh, as Damn, really? Marie. I like that a lot. Yeah, you should watch it. It's good if you're not seeing it. It's fun. That and Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park is probably like one of my like the two favorites up there. Yeah, I, I like the concept of Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, but having watched it, I was kind of a bit disappointed. But I like the idea of like Kiss and Phantom of the Opera because, of course, um, Paul Stanley I think played in the Phantom of the Opera for a while on stage. So there's evidently a a connection there i think it's the makeup thing but i mean that that when you think about elvis like going back to elvis um that question of business and talent is always coming up isn't it you know the idea that he was just kind of this exploited commodity rather than somebody given free reign to fully express his talent 
and I think there's some there is some truth in it that you you know he had a manager that was you know that his first concern was making money out of whatever they were doing. So there's going to be a two part probably answer from you, but who do you think keeps the image of Elvis alive? The one that you would like to remember, or compared to the one that is getting remembered, they're not the same, in my opinion. What do I think keeps the image of Elvis alive? I think it's the um, commercialization. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, th I yeah, yeah. I, 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 I mean, how often do you turn on the radio and hear an Elvis song? Not that often, really. So what, what is going on is that Elvis's, um, estate and the the commercial entity that oversees his public image, is, um, forwarding sort of portrayals and portraits of Elvis through cinema, which was, after all, what kind of kept Elvis alive in the 60s, if you think about it. Uh, they're still doing that now. Um, when you think about it, even if you go back to the 50s, Elvis in cinema was what got Elvis all over the world. I mean, you know, there, it was harder to hear Elvis's music on the radio. There were certain pirate radio underground stations or you know radio luxembourg or whoever playing it in in the uk but when elvis films came along like jailhouse rock and king creole it was like oh this is the guy and this is what he does and this is his performance style and this is what he looks like and then that carried on you know into the 60s that those fans who'd been um turned on by that then still got that image in various like a steady stream of cinematic releases and and that's what's still going on only the cinematic releases that are going on now are more diverse so Baz Luhrmann's film was kind of generally speaking respectful although you know people might dispute me on that but it it, it certainly got across notions of Elvis's charm skill and creativity i think i mean that scene where austin butler as elvis is kind of working up the band in las vegas to kind of um perform the songs i think demonstrates kind of elvis's musical talents um so there's there's that kind of representation and then there's that the recent one uh which i've not actually seen yet so i can't really comment on by Sophia Coppola, which is sort of um, done less well at the box office, but is a different view of Elvis. And then there was the film Elvis and Nixon with Michael Shannon, which is a completely different view of Elvis. So, and then there's the Agent Elvis cartoon. So there's lots of cinematic versionings of Elvis that are coming out that kind of taking the image and the the idea of him in different directions. And I think what he means to a lot of people is kind of ambiguously somewhere between all these different representations, isn't it? Do you think he broke the border of being a musician to an actor and to a karate person? Or do you think that he somehow kind of still stayed in the musician? I think most people probably know him from, I know you mentioned his movies, but to be honest, I mean, I think a lot of kids my age know him just from the music. Yeah. And, and it depends, it depends maybe what generation you are and what, what you've been exposed to and what you see and i think you know in in britain we have quite a lot of tv reruns of things like um the comeback special and the aloha concert so i think people are familiar with elvis's music um so it, it yeah it, it depends yeah what you've been exposed to i think
I'll ask you uh, what's one interesting thing about Elvis that you found out. It could be shocking too. And then I'm going to ask you when it comes to the newer generations, my generation, younger generations, why people should get interested in looking into Elvis, not only his life and his music and his movies, but something personal from you that you found would be, I mean, it's kind of like the same question. So I won't even call it a two parter. <laughs> what, what have I found interesting about Elvis that I didn't know before? I'm constantly finding things that I think find interesting about Elvis. Did he wear a I wig? Did... Sorry. Did he wear a wig? Did he wear a wig? Um, not that I know of. Damn, he's got some great hair. I'm trying to yeah, do yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, of course, he used to dye his hair. You probably know that. And uh, I would hope yeah. so, because that's very jet black. And if somebody has that naturally, it's a problem. Oh, I know something that might interest you, Robbie. Um, Elvis was Jewish. So okay. There you go. There's something, there's something oh. that not many people talk about or know. So um, that, that's maybe an example of... Win for my team. Yeah, I'm like a small percentage Ashkenazi. I don't even really, I guess, qualify. But yeah, that's that's awesome. I didn't know that. That's weird though with the religion thing. Then. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe I believe he he was Jewish on his mother's side, and um, that you know that wasn't made a prominent part of his representation or discussed very much. But um, I think I'm he guessing because sometimes yeah. Kiss used to. It was very a uh, taboo thing for like these guys who were Jewish to dress up and wear whatever outfits and costumes and makeups and things of that sort and go on stage. And I mean, it was rock and roll too. It was kind of seemed demonic more, but um, that that was a thing with them too, which was interesting was that these guys could get up on stage and really have this impact in such a way that was, I don't know, guess different for the, maybe it's a different time. I mean, I think everything's accepted at this point now. Yeah, I, I I think so. I th I think we we you know we'd have to look at the um, the prevalence of anti-Semitism at different points to sort of see you know what you know how that worked out. But um, yeah, I, I think I think it's kind of within the Elvis community of people who kind of read up on Elvis, it's kind of well known that he was Jewish. So that's something that not many people kind of know or think about. Yeah, I mean, I I just you know I'm just there for anything like you know yeah. what what movies he watched or uh you know what books he read or things like that that's that sort of stuff that fascinates me did he ever reach catcher in the rye oh uh oh no i'd have to look that one up i don't know i don't know but i know that you've had some discussions over mark chapman's death and uh that well mark chapman's still alive with john lennon's death oh sorry yeah blimey my head's cabbage isn't it you're right um yeah. Um, yeah. Did I have parole for the fourteenth time? I've never heard that in my entire life. Yeah, I mean, I don't reckon he's ever going to get out, is he? By the sound of it, but um, very um, sad situation all around. Um, yeah, I don't know whether Elvis read Catcher in the Rye. That's a good question. I'd have to sort of do some digging on that. It's not even with Mark Chapman relation. It's just, it, I know it was a popular book of the times back then. And I just, I don't know. I didn't find it very interesting at all to read, but apparently it caught something in the culture. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. Have you ever read it? So you've read it. Yeah. I've never about, actually read it. I'm about um, like maybe halfway through it. And I just decided, I don't think this is getting any better. Um, So let me put that sucker down. Kind of cynical tone. And it? it's, um, 
I think it has a connection with um, Taxi Driver, Catcher in the Rye as well. That might be something to dig into. The movie or the? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, well, I got to watch calls. Taxi Driver. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's a, maybe I've invented it. Um, yeah. But what's one thing for you that you would recommend to people if they're going to look into Elvis? Well, you mean if they're just sort of starting the 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 trail? And well, it, obviously, like... I reached out and decided to have a podcast with you, and that's where my my interest kind of sparked up a little bit. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I guess the first thing you probably should to do if you're on this trail is is read um, Peter Graunick's two biographies of Elvis, uh, Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love, because I think those would be a good education in the story. Um, and then, you know, you could branch out from there, depending on what you're interested in. Um, if you want something... Um, encyclopedic then yeah that that uh elvis encyclopedia by adam victor is one i recommend uh i also recommend my own books of course, of course. Uh, and um yeah i'm always finding i'm always finding new elvis books that's the other thing that like with elvis and the beatles and you know there's a continual growth in the library and you know it's got to a forensic stage where people will do a whole book on Beatlemania in Chicago or um you know Elvis in Texas or or whatever and I, I love that you know that there's this sort of hyper focus now of people researching these different things I will ask this last thing I can edit it out but would you be turned off or maybe away from let's call it more conspiracy if you think that it was more than Mark Chapman um Sorry, would I be turned off the... Because David the... Whelan I've had on the show. And, yeah, I, um... I heard his stuff. Yeah, I did. I actually did a chapter on Mark Chapman. I've, done, I've written a couple of things on Mark Chapman, and I did a chapter on um, on on um, Mark Chapman and the, the death of John Lennon. And more from the point of view... I'm, I mean, really, although I try and write about the facts if I'm given a book on Elvis to do like the one I did, but I am probably more interested in the way that popular culture creates myths and what what those myths are connected with and what they mean and i think um the thing with mark chapman you know i'm i'm not a big enough expert on all of the different angles of second shooter or whatever you know the different bullets and all of that digging stuff so i can't comment on on whelan's book in that respect but i think let let's just if if Chapman did it, let's take take this the idea that he did do it because I think we you know most people would say that he did. Mental illness does not have a motive, and I think one of the one of the issues that I kind of realised was that um, if somebody's mentally struggling, if they you know if they do something, there's not necessarily a rationalizable motive for what they've done, and I think as a culture we want those motivations we want to be able to point and go they did it for this so all the discussion about mark chapman and kind of getting his own fame like it's like the like that film the shootist where you would shoot somebody as a trophy and get your own fame i i really question that because i just think that um really what mark chapman probably did was kind of latch on to those explanations that were already out there to kind of justify or kind of explain what he did and i think that 
you know, that is questionable to me. I think if somebody's mentally struggling, mentally ill, challenged in, in a deep way, and they do something that we would perceive as bizarre or evil, um, there's no real explanation for it. And that was one thing I learned thinking about it, that actually, you know, some things don't have a motivation. They don't have an explanation. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just think um, even, I think it's, the reason he always changes his every parole hearing, it's a different thing. He was first, it was possessed by demons. And well, originally they said they did it for fame. Then it was the catcher in the rye. Then it was possessed by demons. And then it was catcher in the rye. Then it was fame again. Then he doesn't know why he did it. Then he said he didn't do it on all these different like hearings that would keep popping up. And what the best explanation I've heard has been that everyone that goes in there to defend him or when he's going up for parole says, he'll do anything to get out basically. And this person says, say this and we'll get you out. And that's he, that's why he keeps changing his statements. I don't know if he's, he seems pretty clear. If you listen to some of his, I mean, his last interview was like 97, but. Okay. So we, yeah, we don't know why he changes his statements, but that is a plausible or possible explanation. As the is, real truth is the doctor who said it treated him lied. That gives you ability to question anything in that case, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if they, if that's if that's what he says, then 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 maybe well, no, just you can Google that. That's on like all Washington Post, every single news article. Stephen Lynn's the guy's name who said he did it for thirty years. I mean, this. I think the thing with conspiracy theory is that you know don't call we it have... a conspiracy if it has evidence to back it up. Okay. Yeah, but that's my point that we have evidence for all sorts of possible explanations, and then we make links, be interpretive links between those bits of evidence. And that's where things start to become a bit shaky, isn't it? That they are the interpretive links we're making firm. And I think, you know, with I mean, go back to Elvis, you know, there's it's all it's possible to make all sorts of kind of conspiratorial explanations of different things. And I did find a book once in talking of Elvis's growing library called Elvis and the Illuminati. And I thought, oh, this sounds really exciting, Elvis and the Illuminati. And I I, I then checked it out on Amazon. And it was some like Wikipedia rehash, 50% of which was Elvis and 50% of which was about the Illuminati. <laughs> this is bunk. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I think there probably are things that are murky in the world of Elvis that we don't know about. Um, but I don't know if we'll ever know about them. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that, uh, the thing with conspiracy theory is sometimes it, we we put down a marker of what we what we think is an alternative explanation, which is very entertaining and commodifiable. Um, and then, you know, we look for all sorts of circumstantial evidence to sort of make the trail or make the journey between what we know at present and, and what this explanation is. And I think that's where things, you know, for me, start to get a little bit shaky because like, you know, in from an academic sense, I can't really do that. Uh, I have to kind of go where well, every bit needs to be solid or, or I'll be challenged on it. You just can't make the connections. You just, you can't do that. If you just, you just can only point out what is not right compared to what the official yeah. thing was. And, and there's that quote from um, Nietzsche, like, you know, anything you look at for long enough becomes suspicious. That's why I like the JFK stuff for me. I don't even say who did it. I don't fight anybody. I don't fight Oswald's innocence. I said, but if you boil it down to things that you were told and to what we know now based on 60 years, it's a different picture. 
And I think at that point you can question. It doesn't, it's not saying who did it. It's not saying mob or anything like that, but there's just certain things that weren't, whether it was police failure, whether it was, I mean, the Dallas police was corrupt. I mean, they violated Oswald's rights. Didn't let him speak to an attorney when he wanted to. They said he did it for fame. He's in interviews saying I'm a patsy. I don't know what that is, but there's a lot of just inconsistencies and it's about not making the conclusion to it was this or it was this. I mean, we'll all have our independent theories, but when you see a document and then 50 something years later, a document gets released that counters that last one that was originally released. You just go, okay, something, but that, like, that's, that's a fun topic for me. That's just something I'm just interested in. I'm not even going to ask your thoughts on it. Cause I'm sure we'll end up getting into I, it. I honestly don't know enough about JFK that's to uh, give you any thoughts on it, but um I was reading, um, oh, what's the name of that guy? I was reading one book on it, and um, it was saying that somebody called a local newspaper in Cambridge, UK, before it happened, and said something was about to happen. So yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know whether that's true or not. But there, there, it's a though. There's a, I think there's two people that did that, but one who's prominent from the UK that gets mentioned a lot is. Oh, John Wilson, I think his name is. So there's this weird thing that happened with the Warren Commission. And the Warren Commission had stated that Jack Ruby didn't have any mob connections or anything like that. Well, he did. The HSCA proved it later. Um, they actually posted in their documents. that You know what the HSCA is? Um... It's the House Select Committee on Assassinations. It, it came about... 10, 15 years later, but they prove probable conspiracy, but they kind of point at the mob, which only makes sense. You got Blakey in charge of it. I had Blakey on the show. He created RICO, which is the organized crime thing. So if you're talking about having a bias in your investigation, just get the guy from organized crime to end up with the conclusion of mob figures. Hey, whatever. Um, but Burt Griffith, who is a lone nut, like believes Oswald did it, believes the Warren Commission was did a great job. He did prove a fault in their investigation, and he served on the Warren Commission, not the primary committee. There's a secondary committee of all young lawyers. Arlen Specker was one. Um, Sorry, I was going to say, I think what Elvis and J the JFK story have in common is they seem to be endless places of commodification and speculation, don't they? You know, people talk about right. Elvis's life all the time and try and dig up new bits and angles and things. And they do the same for the JFK assassination. So I can see. I mean, if you're hinting I'm doing that right now, I can tell you that the one thing we do know from church committee and all these investigations that came out in America was that Jack Ruby was in Havana when that British reporter said that there was. Right. He he witnessed seeing Ruby in Havana. And um when they asked Ruby it in questioning, he just said I was looking at the sites. Well he visited Traficante. Um that can get called a conspiracy because nobody ever pursued leads. That's the issue, is that if you're trying to find answers, you have things that are either locked away, aren't there, or nobody did any damn police work. So I can see I can see why you would want to dig on the JFK story because you found a lot of things that don't match up the official narrative. Why do you want to dig on the Elvis story? Just because I'm interested in a person whose music I listen to. I feel like you get a more appreciation to the actual thing you're listening to when you can understand the person who's singing it more than just a pretty face on a screen. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Not a nut job. Just got one topic that happens to paint me as one. <laughs> no, no, and 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 I think um, 
understanding figures like Elvis might give you a sort of clue as to those times as well, you know, and 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 uh, maybe strategies for you know those questions around digging. There's there's a book called Elvis Decoded, which has loads of like moments in Elvis's life, a lot about when he died actually, which is kind of not surprising because that was one of the main tabloid focuses of of, of Elvis. Um, and it just puts a lot of accounts alongside each other and goes, you know, well, these three match up and these don't. And so there is that sort of um, rabbit hole like nature of, of Elvis's life as well that people dig into. Well, Mark, I know I went off on a tangent on JFK, but please, can everybody listen to where they can find your links at? You want to let them know Amazon, any other links you have, Twitter, I know you got um, website, Substack, anything. Yeah, um, well, at the moment, my website's down because I have a load of sorting out to do before I put it back up. But um, you can find me on Twitter as, as Sound Research, uh, and you can find my various books on Amazon. I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.